electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and we have a massive rally rally on Wall Street today. I'm not used to saying the word rally. Uh, The number of coronavirus cases in the U.S. has appeared to slow down a little bit. We'll get you the latest in a moment. But the Dow's up 1,200 points. We're back above 22,000. That's nearly a 6% increase right now in similar uh, gains for the S&P 500 and for the Nasdaq today. Now, we did move to session highs after New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo said the latest numbers could suggest a potential flattening of the curve. In the U.S., while we saw a big increase in the number of new cases, that increase went from more than 33,000 on Saturday to just over 28,000 on Sunday. So again, stocks looking for a little bit of better news wherever they can find it these days. Let's get more on all this action. Bob Bassani, who joins us now. Hi, Bob. And we are just off the highs for the day and a a rather titanic upside day. We saw some 5% downside days a few weeks ago, but upside days on 5% haven't seen that very often. I want to show you the S&P 500, Kelly, because we rallied 15, 16 points in the middle of the day as Governor Cuomo talked about a possible flattening of the curve, plateauing, whatever you want to call it. But the market definitely responded to that volume. Uh, spiked up a little bit. Sectors, all the worst sectors in March are the ones rallying today. Home builders up almost 14 percent. Banks, retailers, industrial names, uh, consumer staples, interestingly, are lagging. We even had some at the open that were down, those big consumer staple names that worked so well a couple weeks ago, the Kroger, Clorox's, Campbell's, General Mills, uh, all of them, as you can see here, flat to slightly down, or maybe up 1%. The market trends still intact, lower volume. The VIX is at 44, down from 80. Intraday price swings of 2 to 3% until today, Kelly. And now we got one big one, up 5% on the day. Kelly, back to you. Bob, do my eyes deceive me? Did that just say that the home builders as a sector is up 15% today? Yes, ITB is up 15%. And remember, these were the groups that were most beaten up on concerns overall that, first of all, people wouldn't get a mortgage or people couldn't afford to buy uh, a house given their uh, their circumstances in the last several months. And obviously people are now, it's the glass half full rather than the glass half empty. So the, I would say the U-shaped crowd has that are arguing that we can have a little bit of a better upturn sooner than expected is having a bit of a moment right now. Up until now, I'd say the L-shaped crowd has really had the upper hand. All right. Well, well put, uh, Bob. We appreciate it. Bob Bassani. Uh, with the latest there. Stocks are rallying on these hopes that coronavirus may at least start to level off soon. But these efforts to flatten the curve are taking a, ba- a major toll on the economy. Here's former Fed Chair Janet Yellen voicing her concerns about this earlier on Squawk on the Street. Probably now, um, if we had a timely unemployment statistic, the unemployment rate would probably be up to 12 or 13 percent at this point for the second quarter at an annual rate, we're going to be looking at a decline in GDP um, of at least 30 percent. Joining me now are Rich Weiss. He's the chief investment officer at American Century Investments. And Scott Wren, a senior global equity strategist at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Welcome to you both, Rich. I know you've been very um, cautious, let's say, about the performance of the economy. It sounds like consensus has certainly caught up to you. What's your latest thinking? 
Well, yeah, I think we're in agreement with uh, former Fed Chair Janet Yellen, you know, and she was, uh, I believe, invoking what's called Oaken's Law. Arthur Oaken, the Yale professor, came up with that rule of thumb based on his historical relationship between unemployment and GDP, basically dictating a 1% rise in unemployment coincides historically with a 2% drop in GDP. And that's where you get those kinds of numbers. So it's very possible that the, the the fly in the ointment there, of course, is that that relationship historically is uh, very strong in the normal or typical ranges of unemployment, not when you start hitting double digits. So right. we'll have to see if it holds. But we're we're still very cautious here. The, the market seems to be uh, very anxious to uh, believe in a V-shaped uh, quick recovery here, certainly a strong second half. And there's a lot of downside and vulnerability here, both medically speaking and economically speaking, to turn this into uh, a U or worse. So we're a little more cautious. You know, I thought it was interesting that you say you see potential everywhere, uh, but the tougher question is when. You know, what makes you show, so sure that it's better to wait as opposed to, you know, moving on that opportunity that you do see in front of you? Oh, because what's happening, for example, today, uh, you know, there's there's some good news on curve flattening, both in China and now New York. Um, but even with good news uh, on the virus front, uh, the economy could still uh, be vulnerable with uh, secondary effects, uh, secondary and tertiary effects, supply chain disruptions, uh, defaults and bankruptcies and credit downgrades to come. So Financially, the fallout could be much worse, even if um, the virus were to, were to trend off here. Um, so we do see a lot of opportunity, but and, and of course, you know, the old adage, buying on the dips, it, it really works. But I've never heard anybody say buy on the recessions. And we're still just starting into a pretty bad recession. Let me bring you in, Scott, on that note. Uh, if you want to respond to kind of the, the way that Rich is approaching this, I, I see here that you also would stay away from the small caps right now, which in the last week or so we've heard different voices saying maybe there is some value there. It doesn't sound like you're one of them. No, you know, Kelly, I tell you, we've been uh, underweight small caps for a long time, typically late in a cycle. Uh, they're underperformers. You can see that today they're outperforming by about 100 basis points relative to the S&P. So they would typically, in a normal cycle, whatever that is, um, halfway through the recession into the early years of, of the recovery, you know, small cap and value outperform. So I don't think we're there yet, um, but we're certainly trying to pay close attention. You know, for us, we've been recommending that clients, you know, to stick a toe in the water on big down days. They can be patient. You know, we've had obviously a really good bounce off what I would call uh, a panic low. Uh, we've been here at 2730 three times in the S&P 500 over the last, let's say, five or six trading days. So there's resistance there. There's resistance up at 2750. Um, you know, if history is any example, you're going to have a pretty good bounce, but then you're going to have a pretty good uh, uh, meaningful pullback. So, you know, we continue to think that this is an opportunity. We expect a sharp but relatively short recession. Um, we want our clients to uh, stick with large cap growth type quality stocks right now. Okay. Tech, consumer discretionary. Um, we like com communication services. So, so for us, we're looking at this as an opportunity that we want to actually take action on and leg into on these big down on big down days. 
So, yeah, you are starting, I, like you would say, to, to kind of tiptoe into these markets. And I, I thought Rich's point was interesting that, you know, he says you don't want to buy going into a recession, but we know you do want to buy coming out of one. The, in 2009, I think the market bottomed in March, but the recession technically, Scott, didn't end until June. So, the, you know, if this is a, a, a short event, we could already be needing to think about uh, coming out of it. Or, or is that too early? Well, you can tell the market's thinking about it today with the small cap outperformance, I think. And really sector-wise today, and, you know, today's, of course, only one day, um, it's a little more mixed in terms of sectors. But certainly um, at some point here, it's going to be these more cyclical sectors. You know, it's not going to be defensive sectors, you know, staples and utilities that lead us out of, you know, eventually out of, uh, uh, this, this bear market and take us higher. It's going to be things that are sensitive uh, to the economy. So that's what we want to be paying attention to. And like I said, we expect a, a sharp, very sharp, but relatively short uh, recession here where you see positive GDP in the fourth quarter, okay. and then you see some better news, um, not wildly better, but better news for 2021. Rich, quick final word on that. If we are talking about a positive GDP by the fourth quarter, do we do clients need to be thinking about uh, kind of gingerly starting to buy here? If you have speculative money, powder dry for sure. If, if your risk tolerance or uh, your tolerance for risk is, is very uh, high. But if you're talking about your 401ks, retirement savings, again, treat them like your face. Don't touch them. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you both today. We appreciate it. Richard Rice Thanks, and Kelly. Scott Wren with their thoughts on these markets. Meantime, the number of workers filing for unemployment benefits broke a new record last week with 6.6 million new claims. If my next guess is correct, we're about to break that record again this week. So when can we expect this curve to crest? Joining me now is Jesse Edgerton from J.P. Morgan's economic and policy research team. Jesse, it's good to see you. Uh, certainly caught a lot of attention last week with this uh, forecast. That we're going to hit 7 million new claims this week. Is this as bad as it's going to get? I would hope this might be as bad as it's going to get, but it's hard to know for sure. Uh, if you look at past really sharp events like September 11th or something like that, the level of unemployment claims stayed elevated for something like four or five weeks right afterwards. Uh, so we're just in the third week here on, on this, this event right now. So if that's the case, the 9-11 comparison is a relatively hopeful one. There are a couple of things that are different this time. One is that the uh, unemployment benefits themselves come with a big incentive, the extra $600 to try to help people get through, Does, and, and the uh, wider way of people who can get them, freelancers and gig economy workers for the first time. How much are those factors, you think, increasing claims relative to what the economy itself would be generating? Well, I mean, honestly, I think there are millions, tens of millions of people that would be filing for benefits anyway, even without these, these extra incentives, right? You've got 12 million people that work at restaurants, You've got another 10 million people that work in non-essential retail outside of grocery stores and pharmacies. There's another 20 million people that work in non-essential manufacturing and construction. So, you know, even without these kind of special factors right now, there's, there's easily tens of millions of people that are at risk of getting laid off here. Right. And you just, I think, see, 12 to, that's 32 million people right there you just referenced. So if claims do hit 7 million this week, plus six and a half, 13 and a half, what was it before that? Three and a half, that's 17 million. So we're only about halfway through this thing. Do you think that's about right? Uh, that might be a little bit on the pessimistic side, right? You know, there's, there's easily, say, 50 million jobs at risk from, from the shutdowns here. You know, but we don't know, we don't know exactly how many people are going to get laid off, right? We don't know if restaurants are going to lay off 50% of their employees or, or 90% or, or what. 
you know, I think we're kind of getting close to that, that 50% level at this point. So I would kind of hope that we slow down after that. And obviously, you know, all of these forecasts are contingent on what happens with the coronavirus. I'm curious if you think the claims is relatively uh, tracking the coronavirus curve in real time or with a lag of a week or two. Any early indications there? Uh, it's definitely got a bit of a lag of probably a few weeks. Um, you know, a month ago we were tracking things like uh, the movie box office numbers and the number of people riding the subway in New York and hotel occupancy and things like that. So those things were already starting to plummet, you know, maybe four weeks ago. And then we've just been getting the, you know, the claims numbers hitting kind of for the last two weeks here. So uh, I think the claims numbers are one of our most timely indicators, but they were still a little bit behind these things that were kind of directly hit right away by the virus itself. And what's your total forecast at this point for the number filed? Uh, I mean, I would guess we'll get to something like uh, maybe 25 million here um, over. That would be the sum over the last two weeks plus the next two or three, something like that. Yeah. And from there, just then we'd like to see it drop as quickly as possible in continuing claims. Well, yeah. You know, there was a little bit of a puzzle last week where the entire rise in initial claims from the previous week didn't show up in, in continuing claims. You know, I would kind of can guess maybe that's just like a processing lag and we're going to see uh, the vast majority of these initial claims show up as, as continuing claims at some point there. Absolutely. Jesse, thanks uh, for joining us. We appreciate the information. Sure, you're welcome. Jesse Edgerton is senior economist at J.P. Morgan. And coming up, the White House is saying it's already approved 130,000 loans for a total value of $38 billion to small businesses. It's unclear how much of that has actually made its way to those who need it, and we'll get you the latest next. Plus, biotech company Veer is laying out a hopeful timeline to develop an antibody drug for the coronavirus. We'll speak with the CEO ahead. And oil unable to rally today, despite hints that Russia and Saudi Arabia are very close to a deal. Crude's down 6.5%. We'll look at the twists and turns of this battle for control of the oil market. Stay with us. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Let's get to the very latest coronavirus headlines. Over to Sue Herrera. Hi, Sue. Good afternoon, Kelly. Good afternoon, everyone. Here's the latest numbers as we know them. Global confirmed cases are nearing 1.3 million, and the death toll is now over 70,000 worldwide. That is according to data from Johns Hopkins. New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo reporting a decline in the total number of hospitalizations and ICU patients. Signs, he says, the curve could be starting to flatten. But he warns that state's health care system continues to operate at maximum capacity. The engine is at red line and you can't go any faster. And by the way, you can't stay at red line for any period of time because the system will blow. 
Xerox teaming up with Vortran Medical to step up production of inexpensive disposable ventilators usually used by first responders. They will not replace the ventilators used in hospital ICUs, but they would serve as a stopgap for patients with less severe symptoms. As always, you can get more on CNBC's coronavirus coverage by going to CNBC.com. Kelly, back to you. Okay, Sue, thanks very much. Shares of Veer Biotechnology are soaring today. They're up about 29% on a new partnership with GlaxoSmithKline to develop potential COVID treatments. Glaxo is also taking an equity stake in Veer. Checking on shares of Glaxo, they're up about 2% uh, as Veer hits 30% higher now. Meg Terrell is here with all of the details for us. Meg? Hi, Kelly. Well, these two companies are going to be working together on multiple approaches to coronaviruses and, of course, most urgently for the one that causes COVID-19. Now, that is driving Veer's stock up quite a bit today with the news of that $250 million equity stake uh, from GSK. Uh, Now, what Veer focuses on uh, is targeting antibodies isolated from survivors of disease, and in this case, both SARS and from COVID-19. And they find the best ones, then they engineer them uh, to make them into optimal medicines. Uh, So these companies are going to be working together. They say they have two antibody candidates that they aim to bring in to human testing in a phase two trial within three to five months. And this comes, of course, as we mentioned with GSK, making that equity investment in Veer. Uh, And let's get right to our guest, who is the CEO of Veer, Dr. George Skangos, to tell us more about this partnership and the timelines. Dr. Skangos, it is great to have you with us. Tell us about the timelines, getting into human testing and how long it could potentially take uh, to get a drug for use more broadly. Sure, Meg. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Appreciate, Appreciate the interest. Uh, yeah, we're working together with GSK now. We have a huge amount of respect for uh, GSK and the capabilities they, they bring. Uh, we have two lead antibodies, as we've said before, uh, uh, targeting uh, COVID-2. They, are, they bind to it potently, and they are potent neutralizers of the virus. Uh, they are currently being manufactured uh, at Wuxi, uh, and uh, we have a uh, process development going on together with Biotin. And we hope to be able to have those antibodies ready for clinical testing within three to five months. So it's a very accelerated timeline, recognizing uh, the urgency of the situation and and the need to get some relief as quickly as we can. What does the timeline look like after that? Once you get this into, and you're skipping right over phase one, it sounds like going into humans in phase two, what do the timelines from then look like? Yeah, well, we, we will test the antibody in a couple of different ways, right? First, we want to understand if the antibody or to what extent the antibody can prevent people from getting the disease. So we'll test it as a pro, in a prophylactic setting. And we also want to understand whether or not the antibody can uh, treat people early in the disease and prevent them from progressing to respiratory distress. We are also likely to do a trial in uh, patients who are uh, sick and in respiratory distress to see if we can... Uh, uh, help to reverse that. So we'll do those three trial designs. Uh, there'll be, um, uh, you know, the time of a clinical trial is dependent on the time to enroll the patients and then how long you have to follow those patients. We are planning to do these trials on a worldwide basis so we can enroll very quickly. Uh, the follow-up period is typically will be 30 days or a relatively short period of time. So we're hopeful to get through the clinical trials in a matter of months. Uh, and then, um, assuming the antibody works to make that available to people as quickly as we can. I think everybody involved in the process, certainly GSK and we and the regulatory authorities, as well as clinicians who will be doing the trials, understand the urgency and are doing everything we can 
done to accelerate the program, uh, you know, consistent with, of course, assuring patient safety. Uh, Mr. Skangos, it's Kelly back here in the studio. Thanks again for being with us. Uh, and and uh, early congrats again on, on what might be a, a big breakthrough here. So here's my question. Number one, uh, I understand that the antibodies uh, kind of come from blood donation, especially if there's people who have already had coronavirus. I looked at trying to give blood uh, lately. It's not that easy, as you might imagine right now. I'm not, not even clear to me if it's safe. Can you tell us if you need more of that and, and what people should be thinking about. And related to that, can you talk about the competitive landscape for bringing this product to market? Are you guys first? Do you think your technology is the best and why? Sure. Well, we, we uh, like the way we, of course, we like the way we generate antibodies. You know, we get these from patients who have recovered from the disease. So these are fully human antibodies made by people and they are uh, circulating in people already. Uh, so we, we believe they are uh, likely to be uh, safe and well-tolerated. Uh, we'll, of course, have to test that, but we, we would, would anticipate that to be the case. Um, in this case, we isolated these antibodies from patients who recovered from SARS, not from COVID-2. Those are related viruses. Uh, so these are antibodies that neutralize SARS. And we screened a collection of SARS antibodies that we had previously isolated prior to this epidemic. And we screen them for their ability to neutralize COVID-2. Some of them are potently neutralizing for COVID-2 as well. And so these antibodies would recognize both viruses, obviously recognize something that is the same in both viruses. It's been conserved over all the years uh, that these viruses have evolved separately. And so that part of the virus is probably harder for the virus to alter and therefore escape uh, the antibodies. So we think this is a very good way to isolate antibodies, and they have some uh, potential advantages in being able to prevent uh, viral right. escape. Right? We also have engineered the what's called the FC region, a part, a different part of the antibody, so that uh, it, it uh, in a way that in animal models induces uh, a T cell response, so a long-term response that protects the uh, animals even after the antibody is gone. And so we're going to test the ability of the antibodies to have the same effect in humans. Uh, and if they do, then in, you know, the antibodies can hopefully provide protection in the short term and leave the patient protected over the long term as well. So both the therapy and the vaccine. Well, Dr. Skangos, mm -hmm. it's such an important approach, and we're excited to hear the update today, and we hope to continue getting to hear updates as these trials proceed. Thank you so much for being with us today. Okay. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. George Skangos and our Meg Terrell. Thank, Meg, thank you so much. We appreciate it. We've got some breaking news coming in. It's on Airbus. Phil Lebeau has that story. What's going on, Phil? Kelly, Airbus is suspending production at its plant in Mobile, Alabama. That's a plant that builds the A220 and the A320. Also suspending production at two of its plants in Germany. All of this is because of the COVID-19 impact, taking safety precautions. By the way, Kelly, this move comes one day after Boeing said that its plants out in the Puget Sound area, out in the Seattle area, they're going to be suspending production indefinitely. No indication when that production will resume. Kelly, back to you. Wow. Okay, Phil, we appreciate it. Phil LeBeau. Uh, now let's get back to the government's small business emergency loan program, which has been live since Friday and demand has been fierce. Here's what Larry Kudlow told CNBC's David Faber earlier. It's a monumental undertaking, and I think we have to give Secretary Mnuchin and SBA a lot of credit. This thing's not easy. I just came as of 9.30 this morning, David. Uh, their commitments for $38 billion worth of loans. The loans, 130,000 loans themselves, 2,400 
lenders. So that's a terrific start. Our Kate Rogers has been following all of this from the small biz side, and she joins us now. Uh, Kate, how has the process been so far uh, for the people trying to get money? Hey there, Kelly. Well, from the information that's been made available to CNBC, we understand the process works like this. Small business owners would contact the lenders that they have relationships with and submit their PPP application from SBA.gov to the bank. New applications were released late last week, which meant that some small business owners had to resubmit applications to their banks. The bank would then verify that information on the application and submit that form to the Small Business Administration. The SBA then gives each application an SBA loan number from the eTrans system. With that loan number, which is sent back to the bank, the SBA says the banks have delegated authority to make these loans. But according to industry sources, more information is needed. Many small businesses we've heard from say that they have not received their funds as their banks are awaiting guidance from the SBA. Now, as you said, Larry Kudlow told CNBC this morning the SBA had given out 130,000 e-tran loan numbers for a value of more than $38 billion. But as we've said, it's unclear how much of that $38 billion has made its way to Main Street so far. Lenders will take those next steps in depositing loans into small business owners' accounts. The SBA declined to give CNBC a lump sum number of how much of that $38 billion has actually made its way into the hands of small business owners. We'll continue to push, but someone has to be tracking this. This is a $350 billion program. A lot of small business owners we're hearing from are concerned. It's first come, first serve. So who's getting access to this money and when is really crucial in this time, Kelly? Yeah, it sounds like, though, as of now, I mean, are they still planning on Friday to give access to the independent contractors and others if there's uh, funds still available? That's right. We haven't heard any change about independent contractors and self-employed businesses being able to apply Friday. We also know Secretary Mnuchin said on our air he does plan to go back to Congress if the $350 billion runs out. So there is a promise of more money coming down the line. But as we keep saying and hearing, first come, first serve, that's a, you know, a scary proposition to small business owners who may have submitted applications to their lenders, may not have heard back from their bankers yet. They're kind of in queues waiting to have their loans processed. 2,400 lenders are on the platform now. Hopefully more will join. But again, it's a waiting game right now for Main Street. All right, Kate, thanks. Our Kate Rogers. Coming up, Zoom video has seen a 70% rally in the past three months as more and more people work from home and some of it just group, some of us group chat with our friends uh, using it. But we've got an analyst who says that this big run for Zoom won't last and we'll tell you why that is. Plus, the fintech companies could soon be included in the small business lending program. We'll speak to the co-founder of Square about the role they could play in helping to get money to companies. And a week back into the job, J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon says there are things about this crisis that remind him of 2008. We'll tell you what those are. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange will be right Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. 
Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's a look at some of the biggest calls on the street today. First up, Jefferies is upgrading Tesla to a buy, but lowering its price target to $650. The firm's saying it's the only original equipment manufacturer in the auto space that's legacy-free, has been doubling market coverage, and leads the industry's technological transformation. Shares of Tesla are up 5.5% to just about $507 today. Credit Suisse downgrading Zoom to underperform today, even while raising its price target by 10 bucks to 105 The firm's saying Zoom now has an old ultra-premium valuation, in fact, the richest in the software space. And the recent surge, they warn, will prove short-lived and comes from users that are difficult to monetize. Credit Suisse also worries about Zoom's growing competition. ZM down nearly 9%, trading about 117 today. And finally, Guggenheim is upgrading eBay to a buy with a $36 price target. The firm says at these levels and in this environment, the risk-reward is favorable. eBay has a strong balance sheet, robust cash flow, and has been implementing operational enhancements recently. eBay, which we haven't talked about in a little while, having a better than 5% rally today. But then again, so is everything. Uh, eBay's up to just under $31. Still to come, lots of drama, lots of changes, and plenty of saber rattling. That's the state of the oil market as leaders can't agree on what their next move is. We'll have the latest on the state of play in the energy markets after this. Plus, I really messed up. That's what the CEO of Zoom is saying, in fact, as the company continues to face backlash over security issues. We'll look at its plan to get back on track. Stay with us. Welcome back. Let's get a check on the markets. We have a big, broad-based rally today. The Dow's up 5.6%, just under 1,200 points. Similar increases for the S&P and NASDAQ. NASDAQ's up 400 points. Uh, This coming off, uh, again, just a a difficult stretch for the last couple of weeks. All 11 sectors are higher today, led by utilities, materials, and consumer discretionary. Within the Dow, all 30 names are higher. American Express, Boeing, Visa, and Dow Chemical, or Dow Inc., I should say. Those are the big winners. American Express and Boeing are up more than 12%. Retail is also leading the S&P today. Kepri Holdings, uh, Kohl's. PVH and Nordstrom. Look at these increases. Uh, We're talking about 25% or more in some cases. So huge rallies. uh, And that's pushing the uh, markets overall up more than about 5% today. But it's not oil. Oil itself is down about 6%. And it's on track to break a two-day win streak. This is coming despite reports that a deal may be getting closer for Russia and the Saudis. Let's bring in Brian Sullivan, who can help uh, explain, Brian, what is going on in the oil market these days. I hope I can, because there's about 600 things going on, Kelly. All right, so this Saudi-Russia deal that the president referred to, they're talking about 10 million barrels a day. The reality is those two countries alone are not going to go to 10 million barrels. I mean, it's almost impossible, if not impossible. Any deal would have to include everybody. There was supposed to be, Kelly, an OPEC plus plus virtual meeting today. We know that got moved, my source is telling us, likely to Thursday. There's reports about possible G20 action on Friday. The president now talking about potential tariffs on imported oil as well. There is a ton of things that are going on. Can OPEC get together on Thursday? And if they do, can they agree on anything that's going to be big enough? Kelly, you might have heard about OPEC Plus, which is Russia. This is anything, Kelly, that we do. We'll have to take in OPEC plus, 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 plus. We're talking about OPEC, Russia, Norway, Mexico, Canada, and by the way, the 9,000 or so American producers, if you don't get everybody on board, the Saudis, they've told me over the weekend, they're not going to do anything. It's got to be a cut for all or a cut for none. 
A cut for all or a cut for none. Brian, stick around. On that note, uh, for more on all that's happening in the oil market, let's bring in Paul Sankey. He is managing director and lead oil analyst for Mizuho Securities. Paul, it's just been you know an awful stretch here uh, for the sector. Is there any hope? Oh, yeah, there's hope because I think uh, we're hopeful that demand will snap back pretty quickly. And I'm sure you're aware of what the New York governor was saying, Mr. Cuomo, this morning, that uh, the end to an extent, or at least the peak, is in sight. So I think things will come back. There will be an overhang of inventory, which is really the focus on the OPEC plus agreement. They don't think, I don't think anyone thinks you can solve today's oil market problem. But what we're hoping is that some sort of throttle back, particularly by Saudi, will avoid uh, a total overflow of inventories basically on a, on a four to six to one year view. Right. Paul, if there were people who came to you and said, look, you know, I think energy is oversold or I think it's going to, you know, you know, finally experience a rebound. And, and I want to know where I can put my money to work in the space that is relatively safe. And you know, what, what would you recommend? Well, we're, we're very much in the Permian. We're in the best quality acreage. Uh, we do think there's potential for consolidation amongst the very best names with low leverage. The names like uh, Pioneer, uh, Diamondback Fang, Parsley, uh, Concho, they all offer, uh, we think, long-term attractive valuation and long-term sustainability. The problem is whether or not you want to risk buying something with a lot of debt on the basis that the market surprises to the upside. And that's that's a naughty one. And, and you know, I wouldn't advise that necessarily into as Brian said, the potential for no agreement from OPEC. Right. So, Brian, I want to bring you in with that question as well. I imagine some of these talks must already be taking place, or are the companies hoping they can just ride it out? Because we've seen the bankruptcies already beginning. Yeah, and by the way, shout out to Paul. Paul, by the way, is one of the only sell-side analysts that I've ever seen at an OPEC meeting. Most just do it from New York. Paul actually gets on a plane and goes. And it, ma- and it matters. I'll tell you why it matters. Like Halima Croft and Paul and others that actually physically go there because you get to learn the nuance of the language, the language that they use. You know, we parse these Fed statements for every change in wording. The Saudis, they're the same way. They talk about a fair agreement. That means that's code for U.S. You need to practice what you preach as well. Behind the scenes, I'm sure a lot of people are making a lot of calls. The head of the IEA has been active on Twitter saying, I called Canada. I called Norway. All these countries trying to get together. But to Paul's point, if there's demand destruction of 30 million barrels a day, and even if everybody gets together and cuts 15, Kelly, you don't need to have gone to Virginia Tech's amazing engineering department to know that there's 15 million barrels a day still of oversupply. It will slow down that excess fill of inventory that Paul referred to. It won't stop it. The only thing that can stop it truly is if this stupid virus gets killed sooner than later. We just put it away and the U.S. economy comes back up and demand comes back. Half of all gasoline demand is gone in right. a month, one half. No, it's, it's wild. So, Paul, in that, give us the two scenarios. If there's no deal or, or if there is a deal or a sign of one, where does the oil price go? Well, I think we're finding support definitely here. But the other thing that we're looking at closely is that the physical markets are trading much below the paper markets, which is obviously a major concern. And we'll actually be rolling the oil contract this week. So, do be careful of that one. I would throw in there that there is a bull case for natural gas here because clearly you're going to have to reduce U.S. supply as part of this overall process. Uh, and then ultimately, if we do get an agreement, uh, you know, the reality is the Saudi barrels are already on the water and they're going to keep coming right through May and into June pretty much. So I think that we're going to, at best going to bounce around here 
until we get through COVID and into driving season, hopefully, and everyone has very happy staycations at local hotels or part of a distant hotel. Yeah. Uh, would you, uh, Paul, be going back to OPEC once, you know, like wh when to you is the all clear that it's, it's okay to go to these meetings in person again? Uh, well, I was, firstly, let me <laughs> shout out to Brian, well. who naturally, let me, <laughs> Brian naturally stands out at the OPEC meeting, not just because he's a good couple of inches taller than almost anyone else there. Um, I, look, I'm happy to go straight away. I, I, I'm very, very frustrated for my teenage kids. You know, I feel it's a really rough situation for my soccer-playing son, Harry, and I'm desperate for us all to get out there. In fact, I misinterpreted what Mr. Cuomo said today. He said, let's go out for a walk and relax in the sun, and I was all ready to head out before he suddenly said, no, that's not the way you're meant to be thinking. Hmm. Um, I'm fairly fatalistic about this. I realize the, the risk to people, but... Uh, I'm more than ready to head to Vienna. It's just that, as Brian can testify, the, the headquarters are still shut. And so as long as everything's shut, there's not much we can do. Yeah. Well, Paul, best of wishes in the meantime, and we appreciate it. <laughs> thanks a lot. Brian, thanks to you as well. Superstar of the OPEC uh, meetings there, Brian Sullivan and Paul Sankey. Ahead, the New York City school system becomes the latest to ban the use of Zoom over security concerns. We're going to talk about how the company is responding and whether investors will begin to look elsewhere. Also, take a look at the S&P sector heat map where you see green across the board. Uh, in fact, we're pretty much near session highs right now for these averages. Uh, we're back in two. Welcome back. Square's CEO Jack Dorsey voicing his support of mobile payments to get aid to small business owners who are facing a crisis with stores shut down. Dorsey tweeting on March 26th, quote, people need help immediately. The technology exists to get money to most people today, even to those without bank accounts. Square and many of our peers can get it done. U.S. government, let us help. Joining me exclusively here on The Exchange is Jim McKelvey. He's the co-founder of Square and a former CNBC disruptor, also the author of The Innovation Stack, about what it takes to build a resilient company in a changing world. And we need some resilience right now, Jim. Uh, it's good to have you here. And this morning, by the way, on Squawk Box, the American Banking Associations had sounded like you, they were going to allow uh, fintech companies to participate in this program. Well, we certainly hope so, because uh, we have a lot of technology that's relevant. It can move money very fast, and a lot of these systems are, frankly, safer than uh, paper-based systems. So we hope that that'll be their decision. What do you think you guys, or, or let me say Square, could achieve uh, that the current structure is not able to accomplish right now? Well, um, there are two basic things. First of all, we have very efficient means of uh, transmitting money, so it can be done very quickly. One of the things that we're looking at at the Fed uh, and the Treasury are uh, people who are being uh, really hurt very quickly, and so we want to be able to respond quickly. Well, if we have electronic payments, we can make a very quick uh, response, and, and that's what electronic payments allow us to do. You, I was thinking about your business model because I want to say something like half of the revenue is coming from small business loans lately, right? I mean, am I in the ballpark? In, in other words, go ahead. Uh, so, so we've got a pretty diversified revenue stream at Square, but certainly um, uh, we do a lot with small business, yes. So, so right now the reason why we're trying to go through the bank is so that people know, hey, what is eight weeks worth of pay for a small business? You know, they don't want them to necessarily just go into a portal and type in a number. So Square, would you guys be able pretty instantaneously to say, thanks to our point of sale systems, we can tell you exactly what, you know, eight weeks of cash flow or whatever would look like and be able to make that disbursement quickly and, and in a trustworthy way? Well, for the for the basically everything's on the table. We have um, very good data on the people who are Square sellers. We also have systems that have been proven 
uh, and it could, we think, be scaled up to help in general. But basically what Square is doing is we're just trying to help, um, and the government's taking the lead on this. So it's whatever Treasury and the Fed and um, uh, the IRS want to do. Uh, we're just trying to make uh, sort of modern tools available because sending out paper checks is probably not the best way uh, to help some people. Well, and I know that, I mean, for you, the idea of Square itself comes from why, you know, why couldn't an iPhone be used to process credit card payments when, you know, if American Express isn't accepted, for example. So, I mean, there's a, a lot of things I think you'd look at today and say, why should this be working this way? Can technology make it better, right? Yeah, ironically, Square was founded in the depths of the last recession, 2008, 2009, and that's when uh, things were pretty dire. And uh, Jack and I decided to, you know, build a system to help small merchants, and we're still sort of on that path. Yeah, and so finally, just to return to to the concept, if if what the government wants to know is, you know, what is eight weeks of cash flow, and how quickly can it be demonstrated? Do you think Square could play a role? right now more quickly than pushing small business administration loans through the existing banking system, especially for people who might not, you know, have that relationship or that documentation at the ready? Oh, yeah. I mean, but again, it's not just Square. Any electronic payment system is going to have a huge advantage over um, sort of the traditional paper-based banking system. Um, But when speed is of the essence, you want to use the modern tools. Yeah. Um, Well, we appreciate you joining us, uh, Jim, and, and uh, thank, uh, congratulations as well on the book. Thank you. It's a good timing. It's an ironic time to be publishing a book on uh, disruption and how to handle crises. Right. But, uh, and corporate resilience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Jim McKelvey is the co-founder of Square. Still ahead, shares of Zoom are down. Uh, well, let's talk about this right now, actually. They're down about 8% as the backlash against video conferencing grows. New York City is now banning Zoom for its schools out of security concerns. Deirdre Bosa is here with the latest. Deirdre, this is, I can tell you myself, I just used it for the first time. I think it's better than a lot of the rivals, but uh, security concerns are cropping up. Yeah, and I think that's what it's built on, that ease of use. But it turns out that Zoom isn't immune to some of the same problems that have plagued other very popular platforms like Facebook and YouTube. That is security and privacy concerns. Now, it's ease of use, but you were talking about, Kelly, that is what has made Zoom so popular. It's now looking like a liability. Now, video recordings have showed up on public websites, and the FBI has warned against Zoom bombing. I hope you haven't experienced that. Now, in addition to New York City schools banning the app, that's a measure that will affect more than a million students. New York's AG is also looking into the company's privacy practices, and Tesla and SpaceX have also banned the service for its employees. Now, CEO Eric Yuan is on an apology tour saying that he, quote, messed up and moved too fast. He's freezing new feature releases while focusing on fixing those issues. But Kelly, rivals, they will not wait. Over the weekend, Microsoft Skype announced a new feature called Meet Now. It's very Zoom-like. And you've also got Google's video conferencing app, Duo, upping the number of users allowed in one session. So, yes, you mentioned Zoom is up 70% year-to-date, still Outstanding, one of the hottest work-from-home plays of the year. However, take a look at the last week. It's now down 20% over the last seven days. Kelly? And we remember when market leaders like TiVo, all of a sudden the technology gets commoditized and it's a DVR and everybody has it. I know Zoom doesn't want things to go that way. So as I mentioned, I think the interface is great. It's easy to use. You know, Some of the other ones have annoying features to me that I won't bog everybody down with. 
with the early, uh, uh, at first it featured these Zoom links where you could basically send it to anybody, or if you just tried to come up with it yourself and type in a sequence of numbers, like you said, you could Zoom bomb an existing chat. Mm-hmm. Now I notice when I host them, there's options like a waiting room that you have to kind of click to accept people into. They're talking about more password protections. Are there uh, security concerns about Zoom itself that go beyond that, or do you think making those tweaks will do enough? There are security concerns beyond that. What you're talking about is they're changing the default, so you have to have a password. Uh, There is a waiting room. But Zoom before had said that there was this end-to-end encryption, um, which wasn't necessarily the case. So they are working on that back end, which is extremely important. CEO Eric Yuan also said that this was an app meant for enterprises. But given the coronavirus outbreak, you've got yoga teachers, you've got students, you've got a whole host of people socializing on the app. So these weren't necessarily purposes that they had in mind when they created it. So they're playing catch up now. And in a big way, when you consider that daily active users has gone from 10 million to 200 million, that is a major task. And I guess now we have to see if Zoom is up for it, especially as these rivals are already on its heels. Yep. 10 to 200 million. That is really amazing. Deirdre, thanks very much. Deirdre Bosa. Up next, J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon is back on the job following his major heart procedure, and he's got a pretty grim outlook for how the banking sector is going to weather coronavirus. Those details when the exchange returns. Welcome back. J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon is back on the job after a recent heart procedure and is out with his annual shareholder letter. He discussed the coronavirus crisis, the role of the banks, and a subject most CEOs don't want to touch, which is cutting the dividend. I'm joined now by CNBC.com's Hugh Sun. Um, Hugh, what do you think jumps out most? I mean, he, he, he was, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say dire, maybe realistically uh, concerned about the impact coronavirus is going to have. Yeah, I mean, I think that was uh, not surprising. I think the real one hard news headline out of this report. And, and as you mentioned, it's, it's sort of a must-read every year around April, and we're really glad he, he came back in time for this. But essentially, he's broaching the topic that they could potentially cut the dividend. And you know, as you know, you've had people like David Solomon, you know, uh, James Gorman, uh, Michael Corbett, you know, the CEOs of, of City and Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs go on all air in the past two weeks and say, no, no, the, the dividend is safe. So for Jamie Dimon, you know, the head of the biggest, the number one bank in the United States, to actually broach that topic. I think that's, um, that's really interesting. And if ultimately down the line, and we could talk about this, but if J.P. Morgan, if the, if the dividend is not safe at J.P. Morgan, it is not safe at any bank. Right, which is why I'm not sure whether to even take this at face value, Hugh, or to contextualize it by saying, well, this is an investor letter where I don't know if he's required to lay out outcomes, but it's, he yeah. certainly has to say uh, to people putting their money into J.P. Morgan, look, if this really dire scenario plays out, then we'd have to go this route. I mean, do you think other CEOs would say any different? I mean, this tells me, uh, I think this tells me a couple of things. One, that the situation is so dynamic and, and it's so fast moving that, you know, that perhaps the, the other CEOs can be forgiven for not saying this. But the other thing is, if it's coming from J.P. Morgan, and we all know that they are sort of the blue chip, the standard bearer for, for the industry, and Jamie Dimon has been the chief spokesman for the industry. If it's coming from J.P. Morgan and Jamie Dimon, then perhaps he is giving the rest of the industry permission, you know, to, to, to broach this topic. Mm-hmm. And in, in coming days, it'll be more acceptable. Now, you recall that they, that they as a group, you know, decided we're going to voluntarily bring back our, our stock buyback. And they, as a, as a group, have done a couple other things, including tapping the discount window. I think this is him saying that, you know, if the situation deteriorates, by the way, 
the extreme adverse scenario that he's talking about, in which we would potentially talk about cutting the dividend, you know, a 35% decline in GDP, GDP and unemployment exactly. at 14%. Where Janet Yellen just talked about that today as, as actually what we are in uh, currently. So I, I don't think this situation is is as um, as un, unlikely as, as, as you think. Right. Maybe the difference would be if it's sustained. But again, uh, like you said, the idea that it couldn't happen, well, it certainly could happen at least in a quarter. Hugh, thanks. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Hugh Sun from CNBC.com. Well, next hour, new fears that the mortgage market is on the edge of disaster as millions of borrowers don't have the money to make their payments. Diane Olick will join us with the former head of the Mortgage Bankers Association to explain why they're sounding the alarm. Checking on markets were near session highs at this hour, nearly 6% rally for the Dow Jones Industrial Average 1,250-point gain. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.